0: Hello, and welcome back to In Short. I'm your host, Alicia, an audiobook producer and director, and every other week we'll open with a new author's short story that we've recorded for you. Then following each, I'll be sitting down to chat with the author. We'll talk about writing, the sparks of inspiration, and the process of recording and narrating their story. Then, at the end of this mini-series, I'll be trying to write and narrate my own short story, informed by all the wonderful people I've talked with. We'll also have bonus episodes focusing on audiobooks along the way, chats with industry professionals, interviews with authors, and anyone else I can get to talk to me about audiobooks. This week, we have a short story by Katie Ziegler. Ziegler is a writer and professor living in Walnut Creek, California. Ziegler holds BA and MA in English from Stanford University and is currently pursuing her MFA at St. Mary's College of California. She has had short fiction and non-fiction published in a variety of outlets, including Diggan, Griffel, Wilson Quarterly, Fifth Anthology, and Stanford Magazine. Ziegler won the Stanford Magazine Fiction Contest, was a finalist in Glimmer Train's Short Fiction Contest, and placed second in Fish Anthology's International Flash Fiction Contest. She has also performed readings for her short fiction for Why There Are Words and The Peninsula Literary Society. She currently teaches creative writing at Diablo Valley College. So please, sit back and enjoy this week's short story recorded from Katie's Blanket Fort in Walnut Creek.
1: Like Rapture by Katie Ziegler Vera Peluso rubbed her tongue along her teeth. She considered the familiar grooves and salty taste as she looked up at the ceiling and stretched her legs. Her flannel nightgown had risen above her small waist in the night, exposing her beige cotton underwear. She thought for a moment of pulling her nightgown down, but with Orville's side of the bed empty, she let it be and snapped the elastic waistband of her underwear against her hip like an exclamation point. She turned over and looked at the clutter of work boots and plaid shirts flung over the maple dresser. On his nightstand sat two piles of pocket change, a plastic comb, and yellow measuring tape. There was grease on the measuring tape, a faint smudge of Orville's fingerprint, shining and rounded. Vera concentrated on the fingerprint for a moment, thinking of Orville's hands on her, his fingerprints on her stomach, she pulled her nightgown down with one swift movement. Her tongue flicked quickly to the back of her mouth, lifting and stretching the soft cords anchoring her tooth to her. The gum underneath was tender. Vera pictured it like a sea anemone she'd seen on a nature program on the television a while back, soft and frightened, closing at the slightest touch. From out of the darkness... She decided to press her luck. Why are you up so early? She asked, her voice thin and pale. Go back to bed, Vera, Orville said abruptly. He turned on the light in the hallway bathroom. Just go back to bed. But she clasped her hands under the white coverlet. What did I say, Vera? Jesus, I'm getting a cup of coffee. A goddamn cup of coffee. He came into the room, slammed the top dresser drawer shut and stomped out. She rolled over in bed, away from the light, pulling the coverlet right up to her chin. Vera always made coffee at home the night before, setting the timer for early enough that the warm smell would find its way to her bed. Every night, she scooped the dark brown grounds into the filter and poured cold water from the refrigerator through the little slits at the top. Vera loved the sound of the coffee mattock as it started to percolate, like the engine of her Thunderbird starting in the garage. Vera liked to know that the coffee was there, waiting for her. But every morning, Orville left the steaming hot pot of Vera's coffee alone, untouched, choosing instead an outside source. She listened to Orville move through the house, his heavy feet, his keys jingling from the loop on his belt. She knew exactly which room he was in at all times, Loud, deep steps in the family room hardwood floor. Mouse squeaks from his work boots on the kitchen linoleum. She could feel his presence, even from rooms away. She heard him zip up his blue vinyl jacket in the hall and thought about the day ahead. A small, imperceptibly cold smile appeared on her lips. Fingering the eyelet lace on her nightgown collar, she heard the front door open and close, and then his truck started up outside the bedroom window. Vera bit her hand, right in the soft spot between her thumb and index finger. She held her teeth there, just long enough that when she pulled away, a small semicircle appeared, like shadows of a taste. She watched until the marks slowly disappeared, leaving nothing behind. Vera pulled the covers away and sat on the edge of the bed, From there, she could see herself in the vanity mirror. She turned her face slowly to the right and to the left, her eyes tracing the line of her jaw, the shape of her mouth. She stood up and took a closer look, leaning in towards the mirror. The neckline of her nightgown bared a hint of breast and a spot of freckles along her breastbone that she remembered liking when she was young. They had turned whiter and darker through the years, but still offered a glimpse of long-ago summers and sunburns. She rubbed her fingers along the whiteness above her breasts, watching the skin gather under the pressure of her hands, like paper. She leaned in closer and opened her mouth in what looked like a silent scream, her mouth wide and terrible. Tilting her head back, she tried to see it, but it rested quiet and undetected a secret. He had been like gravity, pulling her towards him and away from the silence of her mother, the darkness of that house. She had spent what seemed like her entire life tracing shapes in the wallpaper of her room, longing for it to crack open so she could step through. A solitary child, Vera's imagination was her companion, but it could not touch her could not offer her the first sweetness of love. So when Orville touched her elbow that night, with the cicadas and moon all around them, asking her what her name was, she saw in him a crack, a light, a movement into something new and unfamiliar. While they were courting, Orville told Vera she had the prettiest set of teeth he had ever seen. He inspected them closely, like a rancher might do a mare. Don't ever let your teeth go, he said to her, in a tone that, at the time, sounded to Vera like a recommendation rather than a threat. And Vera took that advice as a sign that he wanted to be with her, to admire her smile forever. She remembered checking her teeth in the beveled mirror at her parents' house for hours, studying the contours and recesses of her gum line, She poked between her teeth with a small toothpick from a silver case and marveled at the occasional pinprick of blood, wiping it clean away with her tongue. The first night of their honeymoon, as Vera brushed her hair, Orville put a large hand on her shoulder and squeezed. The look in his eyes was unfamiliar, and Vera wondered if he was drunk. She'd only had one glass of champagne at the wedding. It had been warm, handed to her by her mother, whose face registered nothing. Her prim, slightly sunken figure, secure in a dress that she'd made a point of not cutting the tags out of. "'You brush your teeth yet, Vera?' "'Not going to do this without a clean mouth.' "'I was just about to,' she said coyly. Well you get on it? I want to watch you.' And he did he sat down on the toilet with his hands on his knees and watched her squeeze the toothpaste onto the brush. He watched her make small circles with the bristles. Vera was humiliated when he even watched her spit. And the entire time he didn't smile. He just sat there with a look of intensity that Vera had not seen before. As she put the toothbrush back into her floral toiletry bag, Orville stood up "'and took off his undershirt. "'Let's get this thing going then,' he said, "'and he walked over to the bed and took off his pants. Vera smiled shyly and put a piece of hair behind her ear. "'Nervously, she picked at the groove "'between her two front teeth with her fingernail "'like she'd done since she was a child. "'Orville turned around his body full and naked and red, and his eyes passed right over Vera's new nightgown and the hint of blush she had put between her breasts. He walked over to her in what Vera thought would be a first embrace, but instead took Vera's face flush in his hand and squeezed until her mouth opened like a little O, his eyes filled with darkness and danger. Got fingernail polish between your goddamn teeth, he hissed. Goddamn red nail polish. Jesus Christ. From that night on, before he got into bed next to her, Orville felt the bristles of her toothbrush with his thumb to see if they were wet. As he pulled the blankets tightly around his large frame, he insisted that Vera exhale sharply right close to his face so he could check her breath. And who was she to refuse this man who had seen something beautiful in her? Once, she had woken to Orville on top of her, his nose at the corner of her mouth. She lay very still, conscious of breathing through her nose. Seemingly satisfied, he had rolled off of her, but since then she kept breath mints, small and white, tucked between the mattress and box spring. Vera found that it was easiest to concentrate solely on the one attribute that he noticed, she abandoned the weekly hair appointment at Chez Marie and stopped painting her toenails with the thick, saucy nail polish she bought from the Avon lady. Instead, she bought new toothbrushes and toothpaste, fluoride-woven floss, and antiseptic mouthwash. She went every three months to see Dr. Gimple at the Lodi Dental Group on Porter Avenue. She appreciated the delicacy with which he put the small pink paper bib with the fragile chain around her neck, and she always made sure to thank him for the free toothbrush he'd hand her at the end of every visit. My best patient, Dr. Gimple would say as he peered into her mouth. You'll have these teeth until you're a hundred and two, Vera. Even if they made it until then, Vera hoped she would not. Orville liked to tell her to smile in front of company. The day they moved into their first house, Orville called out to their neighbors, Ronnie and Ellen Millstrap, from over the hedge that grew between them. Hey, Hey, he said, waving a tanned arm. Ronnie looked up from collecting his newspaper on the driveway and smiled. Well, hey there, said Ronnie. You the new folks? Sure are, said Orville. Just moving in today. God damn it's hot. Vera, who was organizing laundry supplies in the garage cupboard, winced, hoping the neighbors wouldn't judge them over Orville's use of the word goddamn. It's a hot one, that's for sure, said Ronnie. Name's Ronnie Millstrap. That's my wife Ellen, he said, pointing to a short, round woman kneeling next to a hydrangea bush. She waved and made to stand up. Ah, oh, hell, don't stand up on my account, just happy to meet you. you keep on planting, said Orville. He flashed a wide grin at the gulf between Ellen Millstrap's breasts as she bent over the plant. My wife's Vera, he continued, motioning toward the garage with his head. Prettiest smile I ever seen. You don't say, said Ronnie, laughing. Here, let me show them to you. Orville turned and faced the garage. Hey, Vera, come on over here and show these nice folks your smile. Ronnie laughed nervously and looked at Ellen as she stood up and patted down her green and white floral house dress. Vera attempted to quietly sneak back into the house, away from Orville and the neighbors. But he called out again. Hey, Vera, smile for Ron and Ellen, would you? Be a good girl now. Ellen spoke up first. "Ah, she don't need to smile for us, she said. I'm sure we'll see her smile soon enough. Ain't that right, Ronnie? Ronnie's face visibly relaxed. "Ah, sure. We'll see it some other time. I bet it's a beauty for sure. You're goddamn right it is, said Orville, his eyebrows furrowing into a scowl. And you gotta see it. Hey, Vera, hurry up now. Our neighbors are waiting. As Vera came out of the garage, Ronnie and Ellen Millstrap's eyes barely graced her face. Vera slowly walked to the hedge, the wetness from the freshly watered grass soaking through her white cotton socks. Her house dress was similar in pattern to Ellen's, and she wished she could comment on it, change the subject somehow before this all started. One look at Orville, though, and she quickly smiled towards Ronnie, feeling her lips pull taut against her teeth. She was sure she looked like a dog, baring its teeth to a stranger. How nice, said Ronnie. Isn't that wonderful, said Ellen. Vera kept smiling. She worried that her teeth might dry up and her lips might stick in place. She wasn't sure when she should stop smiling. She thought of grass stains she'd have to bleach from her socks, like the blood stains she'd whitened after she lost the third baby. She waited for Orville's cue. She knew to stop when he laughed at her, loud and deep. He threw his head back so far that all the muscles there beneath his chin pulled and flexed like hard-wound ropes. His Adam's apple jutted out through his skin, vibrating and jostling like a live thing. Vera wondered if it hurt jutting out like that. She hoped it did. Vera's attempts at befriending Ellen Millstrap failed after that first impression. Vera felt like maybe Ellen learned all she needed to about her and Orville that first day. The enchilada casserole that Vera took over to Ellen the next day was never mentioned. The casserole dish was just left, clean as a whistle, out on the front porch a few days later. When the Millstraps moved to Tulsa, the house sat empty for months until a large, imposing woman named Rita McLaren moved in. She referred to herself as the Merry Widow and spoke almost gleefully about her husband's death at the hands of a combine. Vera found Rita's air intoxicating, and sometimes, if Orville was working late on a building site, she'd find herself in Rita's kitchen with the windows open to the sound of the sprinklers and cars outside. Rita liked red wine and kept it in the refrigerator, along with a seemingly bottomless box of Russell Stover chocolates. Vera would have loved to sit there, a jelly jar of red wine in one hand and a chocolate in the other, but knew what the stains would lead to. "'More for me!' Rita would squeal, sticking a long red fingernail into the center of a chocolate to discern its center. Vera was careful not to talk too much about Rita. Orville called her that mouthy broad and warned that nothing good could come from a friendship with the likes of her. But Vera liked to sit and listen to Rita talk with her big words and her jagged laugh until the afternoon she greeted Vera with a pound cake and news. It seemed that Rita had seen Orville at a bar off the interstate, kissing a redhead wearing a blue dress. Vera remembered the way Rita's mouth moved when she said the word affair and the spot of lipstick on her upper teeth. Vera had the instinctual desire to rub it off with a handkerchief, but she resisted. Instead, she sat with her hands folded in her lap. "'Bastard!' Rita hissed, and she looked at Vera with a face that seemed, at once, angry and pleased, waiting for her response. Vera had simply sat, her hands like two small birds, white and still, and waited until Rita left before she locked herself in the bathroom. That night, when Orville's truck turned into the driveway, Vera looked out of the kitchen window and could just make out Rita's shadow there behind her living room curtains, watching. Vera could feel her eyes on her when she didn't confront Orville about the woman at the bar, and they stayed on her when she ladled more sauce onto Orville's plate. As Vera turned from him, he grabbed her backside with his hand and squeezed. Don't understand how any wife of mine could be so damn skinny, he said. I can feel your bones back here, Vera. Vera placed the saucepan in the soapy dishwater, aware of Rita's eyes on her, watching her. She put her hand where Orville's had been and felt the hard angle of her hip. She wondered how the blue dress accentuated the hips of the woman at the bar off the interstate. She pictured her ample bosom and red lipstick, the way her perfume must have led Orville to her from across the room. She wondered if that woman in the blue dress had the prettiest set of teeth he had ever seen. Just then, Rita parted the curtain, and Vera could see her, the outline of her body dark against the glass. Vera turned and sat down next to Orville. She did not speak to Rita McLaren again, not even acknowledging her when she waved from the driveway in the mornings. Over the years, Vera became less inclined to speak with anyone. There had been five or six other women in the years they had been married. One called Vera on the phone and introduced herself as Anne Marie, your husband's mistress. Another sent her a letter about the affair on cream-colored stationery that had the initials L.M.D. embossed in red at the top. Vera thought the stationery was lovely, the woman's handwriting majestic. Vera would sometimes find his truck parked outside another house on one of her late-night car rides in the Thunderbird. She was short behind the wheel, in her green chenille housecoat and flip-flops. There were plenty of cars on the road, so she went along relatively unnoticed. In the summertime, the brown leather interior would stick to the back of Vera's legs. Years ago, when Vera wore pantyhose, she didn't notice that her legs adhered to the seats in the heat. But she had given up pantyhose, along with other things less liberating. Now, in the heat of the Lodi summers, Vera would place a small white terry cloth towel on the driver's seat before she got in the car. Vera liked the faint warmth of the seat through the towel and would sometimes hike up her skirt a few inches when she sat down to feel the warmth on her thighs. Once, as Vera rolled along silent as sleep past the corner of Pershing and Oak, she saw Orville's brown truck. It was parked outside a house she didn't recognize, right underneath a street light that illuminated a white picket fence and a paper bag that had blown against the front door. She was glad of the darkness of the car at that moment, and she parked down the street and watched the house from the rearview mirror. She kept the radio on, and a slow country song she used to like started to play. The singer's voice was low and deep, and Vera felt strangely calm, watching the paper bag flutter against the screen door like a butterfly, and she wondered who the woman was. She wondered what body parts he complimented on her, on the others, a bust line, the curve of a hip, the nape of a neck. The door opened and Orville was there, the shirt she'd ironed just that morning, untucked from his work jeans, his hair a tousled mess. All she could see of the woman was a long white arm, a hint of bare shoulder, stark against the darkness of the doorway. Moths flew in crazy circles against the porch light, and Vera watched, listening to that man's baritone song on the radio. Orville walked, his stride long and confident. Then he stopped and turned, not toward Vera, waiting quietly, but back toward the white arm, the hint of shoulder still visible. He paused, ran his fingers through his coarse hair, and walked back to the house. By the time he got to the front door, the white arms enfolded him and he closed the door behind them with his foot. Vera adjusted herself in her seat, her breath shallow. Leaning toward the glove compartment, she retrieved a small silver case. Opening it, she took a wooden toothpick and held it up in the dark, her eyes adjusting just enough to see its slight outline. Carefully, she opened her mouth and with a sigh that to some might sound like rapture, forced the toothpick under the gums of her top teeth until the wood snapped like bone. She pretended to be asleep when he got home that night, not stirring when he crawled into bed beside her. It was only when he began to snore that she tiptoed into the kitchen, pulling open the cupboard slowly so as not to make a sound. When she found the martini set that her mother-in-law had given them for their wedding, she placed it on the counter. The silver shaker was engraved with a tipsy-looking man in a bowler hat. Vera remembered the taste of that first martini with Orville, the cold bite of it against her tongue, how he had toasted her, and when their glasses met, a rivulet of vodka had spilled onto her wrist. Orville had leaned over and with his tongue lapped up the vodka, and then— without warning, bitten her until she'd winced. Rooting around, Vera found what she'd been looking for. She lifted the metal cocktail picks from their container, four of them, long and silver. She placed them in her robe pocket, and after putting the martini set back, returned to bed, replacing the white breath mints with new, more helpful tools. She could move it with her tongue now, the tooth, Just one small sinew remained, the tissue underneath raw and angry, but if she positioned it correctly and kept her teeth held tightly together, it held in place. It hurt to smile like that, but she had managed to hide it from Orville that way. Only when he turned would she allow it to loosen, the taste of blood in her mouth a welcome tonic to all that ailed her. She could have just done it herself, but, When it was time, Vera felt she deserved to see him again. She'd neglected her quarterly visits while she'd worked and wanted for him to see what she'd accomplished. The receptionist's voice was not familiar to Vera, but she had been so kind. She rolled her R when she said Vera's name, and Vera thought it made her name sound like a poem. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that, the receptionist said. Yes, let's see if we can fit you in as soon as possible. As she took her hair out of the pink sponge curlers, she fiddled with the tooth, flicking her tongue against it so that it slipped like a tethered ball. She sprayed perfume on her wrists and chest and dabbed a bit into the part of her hair. She hadn't worn earrings in so long that she had to re-pierce them with the stems of her pearl earrings, pushing the tiny rod into the skin at the back of her earlobe and leaving a small dot of blood on her fingertip. She gathered her purse and her keys, locked the front door behind her, and walked to the Thunderbird. The day was hot, and the air clung sultry against her. She opened the car door, and a wave of heat erupted from the interior. She thought for a moment of placing the terrycloth towel on the leather seat, but instead looked quickly around and lifted her skirt up before sitting down. The familiar burn, so often muted by the cloth, was at once excruciating but melted into desire, and she sat for a moment, allowing herself to feel it. Vera took a compact mirror out of her purse and took a long look at herself. She didn't smile. No one was forcing her to. She just stared for a moment, gathering herself, and drove off. When Vera checked in with the receptionist, she looked just like Vera had pictured her. She was petite with a little black bun low at the nape of her neck. She told Vera to take a seat, and the doctor would be right with her. Vera fingered the pages of a glossy magazine, her tongue occasionally finding its way to the soft bud at the back of her mouth. The receptionist called Vera's name, rolling her R's just like she had on the phone, And Vera rose triumphantly and walked into the room with a plastic number four on the door. A dental hygienist, whose name tag read Helen, shook her hand and told her to sit in the reclining chair in the middle of the room. And how are you today? Helen asked, busily setting out all sorts of shining instruments for the procedure. I'm just fine, thank you, said Vera. Her voice was strangely confident. Just fine. "'Well, that's great,' said Helen. "'Sounds like you've had some trouble with your tooth, but you seem cool as a cuke.' Vera laughed. She always liked the phrase, cool as a cuke, and it felt good to laugh out loud. "'Now,' said Helen, securing the small paper bib around Vera's neck, "'let me get some x-rays of those teeth of yours so we can get an idea of what shape your mouth is in.' She reached into the pocket of her scrubs and pulled out a little folding piece of x-ray film. She took off the packaging around it and told Vera to open wide. She placed the film between the molars on her left side and told her to bite down. The film cut a little into the side of Vera's mouth, and she winced. Oh, it'll just be a minute there, dear. Hold on, I'll take the picture. She left the room, and the next thing Vera heard was a small buzz, like a little robotic burp, and then Helen was back in the room. Helen took similar x rays of all of Vera's teeth that way and then left the room for a moment. While she waited, Vera tapped her feet together at the end of the reclining chair. She felt like a little girl in a big easy chair whose legs dangle off the sides in black patent leather shoes. Soft music was piped into the room through a speaker near the ceiling, and Vera recognized the song but couldn't quite remember the name. She hummed along, tapping her feet together and smoothing out the creases in her skirt. Helen returned, and with a smile, asked Vera to open her mouth. Vera opened her mouth as wide as could be. Oh my goodness, said Helen. What happened there? Vera smiled. I'm really not sure. It just began to bother me, so I thought I'd have it checked out. Are you in pain? Helen asked. No, Vera said slowly. Well, thank goodness for that, said Helen. Let me just go grab the doctor for you and we'll fix you right up. She hurried out of the room, her pink scrubs swishing together where her thighs met. Moments later, Dr. Gimple came in. He was so lovely, tall, with light brown hair that waved around his temples. Vera just about cried when she saw him. Well, hello, Vera, Dr. Gimple said, grabbing her hand and shaking it vigorously. It has been much too long. Where in the world have you been? He smiled and poked her gently with his finger. You've been very naughty, haven't you? Vera smiled, her tongue flicking the tooth back and forth, back and forth. All right now, he said. Let's take a look. He pressed a button, and suddenly Vera found herself traveling backwards until her feet were higher than her head. Dr. Gimple swung a bright light above her and adjusted his glasses. Now say, ah, my dear. Vera opened wide as Dr. Gimple inserted a small, long-handled mirror into her mouth. Dear, dear, he said, leaning away from her. What in the world happened? With the mirror still in her mouth, Vera could only grunt in response. Helen, can you grab a curette and some gauze? Out of her peripheral vision, Vera could see a bustle of pink scrubs. Now this looks positively destroyed, Vera, my God! Dr. Gimple removed the metal instruments from Vera's mouth, his face contorted in concern and a hint of disgust. The taste of blood was thick in her throat. Vera sat for a moment, listening to the music coming through the holes in the ceiling and rubbing her thighs with her hands. I really have no idea, she said. I just couldn't make it to see you and all hell broke loose, I suppose. She smiled and immediately grimaced, a pain like hot electricity shot through her jaw. Well, we've got to take that tooth out, I'm afraid, said Dr. Gimple. It's just unsalvageable, he paused. Are you sure you don't have any idea what caused this? It looks like it's been stabbed at with an ice pick. Martini pick, she thought, and bit the inside of her mouth to avoid the grin that seemed imminent. And it'll require some stitches, too, he said, looking at Helen. And then we'll need to discuss a replacement tooth. Vera quickly turned to him, a silvery feeling at the base of her stomach. No, I'll be fine, she said. I don't need a replacement. Dr. Gimple laughed softly. (laughs) Now, Vera, there's no need to be nervous about that. We can either do some sort of bridge or we could discuss some sort of implant. You'll want a new tooth there, shiny and new. I'd rather not, she said, matter-of-factly. But thank you all the same. Her voice was unfamiliar to her. There was a quality to it she couldn't quite put her finger on. She was reminded of Rita's laugh, low and muddied by cigarette smoke. Helen came into her eye line, her round cheeks rosy and slightly glossy. Vera, Helen said, you'd be amazed by these new teeth. They're not making them from wood any more." Dr. Gimple chuckled nervously and placed a hand on Vera's shoulder. All right then, Vera, good. Vera straightened the paper bib at her throat. No, thank you, she said. We'll just leave it for now. And as if irritated, Or disappointed, doctor Gimple sighed heavily and shook his head. Women, he muttered under his breath. Then, straightening, he called to Helen. Well, okay then. Let's get this tooth out of there before it does any more damage. Helen, let's get some Novocaine ready. Vera, you want some laughing gas? Vera couldn't think of anything she'd want more, and when she breathed in, it was like the perfumes she'd taken from the magazines over the years. The world bent slightly at the edges, and she felt her legs lifting as if weightless. She was aware of Dr. Gimple near her, his face so close she could have kissed him, and the light above her was the sun spreading over her body like gold. When it was over, she brought her legs down from the chair onto the floor and stood up, steadying herself against the chair. From where she stood, she could see out the window into the parking lot, and just beyond there were a few trees and the curve of a street. Vera picked up her purse and walked to the receptionist's desk. The receptionist stood. She couldn't have been more than five feet tall in heels, and Vera noticed her soft pink dress had a small white pin in the shape of a tooth right above her left breast. Once standing, the receptionist put a hand out and took Vera's hand in hers. God bless, she said, squeezing Vera's hand. God bless. Outside, Vera's eyes had to adjust to the sunlight. She put her right hand up against her forehead to see. The heat had softened a bit as Vera got into the car. Her mouth felt oversized and heavy. She reached up to touch her jawline and couldn't feel her fingers against her skin like a phantom hand caressing the air. She looked at herself in the rearview mirror, her cheek swollen, but not so much that a stranger would be able to tell something was missing. She could walk through the door without so much as a shift in the balance of her stride. Dr. Gimple called it a pocket, and she liked the word, as if she could fill it with coins or bubblegum or secrets. Dr. Gimple had told her it might take a few hours for this sensation to come back, but she didn't mind. It was there. She knew it. It was hers, dark and quiet. Like a shadow, like a lover. As she pulled into the garage, the tennis ball hanging from a string edged toward her windshield. She remembered when Orville had hung it when they first moved in. It'll tell you when to stop, he said. And she had obeyed, inwardly praising herself on the precision with which she parked, just kissing it before putting on the brake. She gathered her purse and let herself in. She was hungry, but Dr. Gimple had told her not to eat or drink until the feeling came back into her mouth. She didn't mind. The emptiness in her stomach was almost pleasant. She turned on the radio, a country song low and sweet, and let it follow her into the bathroom. Turning on the light, she came close to the mirror and opened her mouth, turning her head from side to side so she could see from all angles. The effect was slightly shocking, but Vera continued her investigation, even seeing if she could place the tip of her finger all the way through the space where her tooth had been. Her mouth had a slightly bitter taste, and when she spit, a thin trail of blood slid down the drain. Vera, he called, you in here? She could hear the front door slam, his feet on the floor. She stood up tall, pinched her cheeks as her mother had shown her all those years ago, and turned. He stood in the hallway, his hair slightly damp against his ears and temples, as if he'd recently showered. She said nothing. What's wrong with you? he demanded, hands on hips. Vera smiled. Hey katie how are you doing hello oh my gosh it's so nice to speak with you thank you so much
0: well, it's great for you to come on the show. we um, just loved your short story, like Rapture. Um, and yeah, so really happy to have you with us today to chat about it. Um, this whole season is about exploring short stories because I personally find them fascinating but incredibly challenging to write. Uh, so I'd love to start there. So I'd love to know why you write short stories. Um, what's the appeal for you?
1: So it's interesting. And when you say that they are challenging, they are. They are their own beast in and of themselves. Because I think that that we are forced as writers to give our readers this slice of life, a slice of experience, but that has all of the emotional resonance of much longer peace. And I think I, I teach college English as well. And I spend a lot of time... Working with my students on the differences between flash fiction and short stories and what each accomplishes.
0: Could you give us a quick rundown of that?
1: Sure. So, flash fiction has a bunch of different genres. It can be anywhere from a six-word short story um, mm-hmm. to microfiction, which is about 150 uh, words, and then you get up to flash fiction, which is technically about a thousand words, fifteen hundred okay. words. Um, which is a wonderful, it's not a new genre, but it's it's getting a lot of interest and a lot mm. of um, publication right now. And a lot of fairly established writers are trying their hand at flash fiction because you really do have to kind of zoom in with that laser, laser focus and tell your story. I, am, mm-hmm. I have had only one piece of flash fiction published. And honestly, that was the most I've ever perspired in writing something (laughs) because the pressure is really on you have to you have to have that arc very very quickly um I had never thought of myself as a novel writer until just Mm. recently um now I am working on a long form piece um but it's a completely different set of muscles which I think is really interesting um there's because you have so much more space Mm -hmm. uh, you're allowed to sort of dig in a little bit and have I don't want to say superfluous but you can have extra information you can go off on a bit of a tangent when you can't really afford to do that in a short story
0: Mm, Um, but I
1: think my heart does belong to the short story form I just find it such a fast I love to read short stories I love to listen to short stories um, and I love the act of writing them of having a little bit of that pressure put on you to, to come up with something in a finite amount of pages.
0: And so how do you, how can you tell that an idea is a short story rather than uh, it needs to be flash fiction or it needs to be a novel? Like, h- how do you decide?
1: I think for me, my short stories tend to be a little bit of either a profile of, of one person with sort mm. of a very small list of supporting characters Um, Or it's kind of a day in the life. I tend to really like short stories where not a whole lot really happens. There isn't sort of the stereotypical climax. Um, It's just a very small shift in perception or a shift in understanding. Um, And that's what I think has to happen for, for me in a short story is the action needs to lend itself to an emotional shift. Just a little bit of, shift. yes, just a little bit of the knob turning, just a couple of notches. Um, and that's what I love about short fiction. With a novel, now that I'm in the process of trying mm-hmm. to write one, um, it is there is kind of a delicious aspect to you just have more time to dig into each thing. Whereas with a short story, you really do have to say goodbye fairly quickly to something mm-hmm. you love in order to get on to the next thing.
0: See, I find that you say that's so interesting because one of the things that I've noticed about your short story um, is that it's just so full of detail. Like, there's so many, like, small moments that absolutely didn't need to be there. And so, I I mean, we'll talk about sort of how you did that in your particular short story in, in a second. But um, I'm really interested in how do you decide what information goes into that short story? How do you pack so much detail in and create this such a rounded world and character whilst keeping it so short?
1: Right. I, and that's a great question. I think for me, there's there's two things that happen when I write. One is that I sit here and I just sweat through the entire thing. <laughs> and the other is that delicious moment that doesn't happen very often where I will write something and even pages of something and then look and it's almost unrecognizable. It's almost as if you know, you, you sort of you talk about the cliche of the muse, but you do, But there is this moment where you kind of get into that person's
0: mm.
1: thought process, into that person's personality and character. Um, and I think that's for me when the detail starts to come out. That's when I know that I need to talk about the particular color of her fingernail polish mm. in order to establish something kind of subterranean that needs to happen in the piece.
0: So it all comes from character as opposed to things happening.
1: Yes. For me, I think I I need to be very, very focused on the character. Um, and that's kind of the entryway that I use for my stories and for my writing. Mm. Um, I take a lot of notes. I mean, a lot of, I would say for, for like Rapture, I probably have three pages of details that didn't make it into yeah. the final, just because then you can tip over into <laughs> kind of obnoxious amounts of detail. <laughs> Um, but it's also that you have to let the details speak for the experience of the person because you can't give their full life history. And so for me, things like, you know, her, the, the fact that she likes to feel the heat of the interior Mm. of her car on the backs of her legs, that's something that indicates, you know, a, a loneliness in her and a lack of warmth and a lack of affection um, that I can accomplish without telling the reader, this is a lonely woman.
0: Yeah, the classic sort of show, don't tell. Yeah. Well, so as we're as we're here at like Rapture, um, tell me, how did you generate such a visceral idea? I'm particularly sensitive about teeth. <laughs> um, I'm a bit delicate when it comes to dentists and that sort of thing. So when this came into my inbox, I was reading it with a whole host of tension, just waiting to see how this played out. So tell me, how did you come up with like Rapture?
1: So it's interesting because I too share the dental phobia I, <laughs> and I always have. And I think it's a combination of that. And my paternal grandmother, um, for whatever reason, when she came of a certain age, she decided that she wanted to have all of her teeth pulled um, yes, no, I know, and have, and just have dentures, that she was done wow. caring for her teeth, that it was time to just not have to worry about it anymore. Um, and it was rather preemptive, and it was not due to, you know, a lack of dental hygiene. It was just a decision that she made, which I was very young when this happened, and I mm. never had a conversation with her about it. But it stuck in my head for yeah. decades that what what... If not her, I, I'm not saying that this was any of her sort of mental, emotional mm-hmm. um, dealings about this particular situation. But I did always wonder what could what could propel someone to make a decision like that? What could propel someone to want to, for all intents and purposes, kind of harm themselves in a way? Mm-hmm. Um, and so it it just stuck in my head. And this is a piece that I have been working on and fiddling with for years and years and years. And it's gone through many different iterations. I've had versions where she did have all of her teeth pulled, where she didn't do anything to her teeth. And it was really through the process of, I'm in an MFA program right now. And it was through the workshop process um, Mm. where my advisor basically said, look, can you think of a situation where you could just have her really play around with that one tooth? Mm. I think all of them is too many, even though that is sort of factually accurate for your yeah. personal experience. Um, and that really opened up the floodgates for me that, again, because I'm so drawn to kind of small moments and small yes. shifts in perception, the fact that she could feel a certain amount of kind of jubilant triumph in this one small shift in her physicality. I think is so much more dramatic than having them all go.
0: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think like that end line is so satisfying and you feel so uh, sort of connected to the power that she has she has created for herself. And I think you really do see Vera go from um, sort of, needing the approval needing the love needing that physical attribution to be complemented um, due to a you know emotional abusive relationship um but you see that strength grow so beautifully throughout and, and and you almost don't notice it happening until you're like oh wait she is so much stronger and I can see it here I can see it here I can see it here um, and then that last line is yeah it's You really, really create um, such a sense of sort of um, victory in something that actually feels like technically shouldn't be victorious at all. The shift in her as a character is, yeah, it's so strong. Um, And so I want to... Before we get into the performance of this and kind of how the writing played off into the, the narration, I'd love to know about your own listening experience with audiobooks. Um, are they a part of your reading routine? Like, how, how, how is that for you?
1: So I am actually, this is such a delight to talk about this because I, am, I love listening to audiobooks and I always have. I mean, I'm old enough now that <laughs> I will not refer to them as books on tape, but that's what they were. <laughs> <laughs> Um and we really I mean growing up we listened to books on tape on I'm an only child we used to drive I grew up in northern California we would go mm. on these long family trips um and I think in order to keep me entertained in the back seat we would listen yeah. to we would go to the library and check out books on tape and listen to them and I just I've always been an avid reader I've always had my nose in a book and mm-hmm. this was just another point of entry for me into literature yeah. was listening to it um, and I think it's a very different experience between digesting something visually and digesting something, um, you know, from from a real physical standpoint through your ears. I think I think that there's so much nuance that can come through in a reading Um mm-hmm. So I actually I you know particularly since the pandemic started I've my one yeah. kind of release has been going on these long walks every day and I listen mm-hmm. to audiobooks on every walk and yeah I just love and I will often read the books that I've I I usually read the book first and then dive into the audiobook Right. Um, and it's a different experience every time it's, I pick up on different things. I pick up on different emotional shifts that maybe I didn't necessarily notice the first time around. Um, mm-hmm. And I just, for me again, there's just something very visceral about the act of listening um, that feels for me, even more engaged in the piece um, mm-hmm. that I just love. And it, and it clearly, it depends upon the reader and every reader yeah. gives something different to every new novel or podcast that I listen to. I love listening to short stories um, mm-hmm. on podcasts and through audiobooks as well. So I, I'm definitely a believer in um, listening as well as reading. And I tell that to my students as well. Whenever yeah. we have a new short story or poem, I will always find a recording of it for them to listen to, just because I think it can give such a different experience of the piece itself by mm-hmm. experiencing it in a different a different sensory way.
0: So that's really interesting. Um, I, my background's in theatre, and so there was this exercise that I remember we used to do, and it sticks with me really, really strongly. I can't remember which practitioner I should attribute it to. Um, I'll put it in the show notes if I remember. But it's this great exercise where it's um, a set of lines, and it starts with, would you like a cup of tea? the person replies yes and then you ask sugar and they say two please and you do that and the whole point of it is to try and get um the subtext through oh
1: right yeah
0: and so performing it with different tones um and then suddenly you have um a couple fighting suddenly you have a couple flirting suddenly you have um someone rejecting someone and it's it's really fascinating and so i love that you get your students to listen to it because it really does take that question of interpretation um, and having your own reading experience, it all happens in your head um, and then having it outperformed for you, it starts challenging what you read and adding to or taking from. So I, I love that you do that.
1: It is. And I think it, it there is so much theater in it um, mm. that even <laughs> I'll admit on my walk luckily no one can see me on my walk well hopefully <laughs> hopefully no one can see me but I'll find that when a facial expression is described in an audiobook I find myself mimicking <laughs> you know what I mean because you want you yeah. want to feel like you're part of the experience of the story and there's mm. something about listening to it that that just opens it up in a different way I think.
0: I'm really interested to know that as someone who has listened to audiobooks sort of from a young age and it has always been a part of your experience. I'm really interested to know um sort of how audiobooks have changed for you from um that young age to now either in your uh sort of uh receiving of them or in how they're being performed. I'd be I'd love to know.
1: I think one thing that I I've found that I love so much is um, well in the day, I mean, in the days of listening to audio, I remember very specifically when my husband and I drove cross country um, before we got married, we drove from mm-hmm. Maine to California, which was, and at the time it was still cassette tape players in a car. <laughs> and I remember it so viv- vividly that we listened to Smilla's sense of snow. Mm-hmm. And, I just remember being so frustrated by the end of the tape because then you'd have to eject it, turn it over. And and there was (laughs) such a break in the fluidity of the story. There was such that and you hadn't caused it. It's not like when you have to pause and, you know, cross the street or do something. And so for me, the joy of audiobooks now is that it's one unadulterated story. Yeah. And there doesn't seem to be... I, I've never listened to anything abridged. I don't like the idea of someone saying, no, we're going to take this out. Um, yeah. And now I feel like there's been a shift in that as well that I feel like there's... that really you don't see abridged as often as you did in right. the old days because <laughs> now there's just this unadulterated access to it and you can mm. have these long periods of time. And that's that to me, I love... The full immersion of it. I love the um I also love feeling like you get used to the narrator's voice, and you mm. almost in in addition to having a relationship with the characters and with the story you end up having this strange sort of relationship with the narrator as well. Yeah. And you come definitely. to trust them, even if they're an unreliable narrator, you come to trust them that they are you going come to, to tell trust you. trust the voice. Yes. Familiar. Yes. Yeah. And that you, that they are going to tell you this story in the best way possible. And I love that aspect of it, that they have your best interest as a listener at heart.
0: Yeah, I find it really interesting when you get, um, so I mean, some authors, their stories, their narrators are so, like you have such a strong narrative voice and you get a real sense of a character in the narration themselves. And in others, they kind of go for much more of a blank canvas sort of noticing. Yes. Um, And I find even with those blank canvas kind of narrators, you still get this sense of character whether you like it or not.
1: Absolutely. Um
0: yeah, and so I think there are there are some amazing. I I used to um be of the opinion that kind of the old-fashioned blank canvas narration was just not my thing. Yeah. Um but now as I listen more and more and I'm working in the industry, I find that there are these stories that really need that skill. Um, and there are, there are narrators like, um, for example, Julia Whelan, um, who, who is so good at character, so good at voice and so good. Um, but then when it comes down to narration and kind of that blank canvas, I'm doing air quotes for listeners. Yes. Um, it's such a skill to be able to try not to have an opinion in your voice. Yes. Um, and I love how she does it. Because she she can do everything, you know. Right. Um, and so just, yeah, I, I find it really fascinating that kind of balance of how much character can you put into a narrative yes. voice.
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's interesting to consider how much again, to your point of like the blank canvas or just mm. how invested I'll sometimes see if I can sort of suss out. If then, if the narrator has an opinion about a character, has an opinion mm. about, I love sort of doing that little investigation in the tone to see if they are truly trying to remain impartial yeah. <laughs> through the piece, or if any of any opinion is is somewhat betrayed <laughs> in the narration. Yeah,
0: yeah, definitely. I um, I I find it fascinating talking to narrators uh, as how they approach that um especially especially when they'll have read the story and what about when you get to a point where you know the narrator knows what's coming and like how do you how do you balance what you know is coming how do you balance your tone because they don't have instant feedback right it's such a delicate balance it's such a yeah i i I find them truly truly fascinating how they manage to do it so well yeah um so, okay. Now you listen to lots of audiobooks. How was it listening to your story?
1: Well, I have to thank you because I feel like you had such a wonderful understanding of Vera's voice um, and her experience. And so in our conversation leading up to the recording, I, I just found all of your ideas and all of your thoughts about the recording to be so helpful and also so freeing um, because this story has lived in my head for so long that Mm. um, and I have read it a couple of times at a number of literary salons and readings and things um, and it's different every time and even Mm. even though I'm the writer of it you pick up on different things and you and you try to bring that through in your intonation Um, but I think for me, listening to it, once I could sort of remove that self-deprecating, like, oh, dear, that's my voice, <laughs> right? Like once you can, once yeah. you can get over, you know, that that initial horror.
0: Um, you are not alone <laughs> feeling that.
1: I think it was so wonderful to hear it, not while I'm in the process of reading it, because I think... Mm. When I have read it, when I've read it to myself to practice or things, I'm so conscious of um, the act of reading it, the act of making sure that I'm doing this story justice. Um, And for me, the act of listening to it was just this very, um, again, this very physical experience of just being immersed for this one moment in this woman's life um mm-hmm. to the point where i could then pick up on different things that i had sort of neglected to pick up on in the writing That's great. um That's just great. little shifts in in intonation shifts in volume um you know what you say with a smile as opposed to what you don't which mm-hmm. makes such a difference in i yeah. hope the listener's understanding of the woman and the story
0: yeah i'm 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 so glad that um, it was a process that you enjoyed. Oh, it, it was, was such, lovely. Yeah, it was such a pleasure um, to kind of get inside Vera's, you know, kind of difficult, twisted world. And like her, her, her voice is so strong, which I think is why I was pick- like, I found it so easy to connect to. Right. Um. And you were just such a natural when it came to recording it. I'm so fascinated that you have no performance background. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> But like you had such a natural, um, a natural narration. You were so familiar. I mean, obviously you've written it so many times, but when it, um, you read through it as well, and I think it's not always the case that a writer comes to give voice to their characters and give give voice to the narration that they they often go oh gosh I didn't I didn't think of that I didn't think of this how would like and so I think that you just had such a natural grasp of that and do you think the uh, reading it out loud at salons prepared you for that I think so
1: and honestly I haven't thought of this in years but just you talking right now made me think of it so my <laughs> my grandmother and I had a little tradition that we would read books at the same time and we would read them to each other on the phone so oh, nice. Um, We did that with The Hound of the Baskervilles. We did that with The Great Gatsby. And I remember when I first started writing short stories, um, my grandmother and my mother were both such avid listeners um, Mm -hmm. that they always wanted me to read my work out loud to them that I got into the process of that's that there needed to be a performance aspect to it. There needed to be something to make sure that the reader understood mm. not only th- what the story is, but how important it was to me in the writing. Yeah. Um. And so I do, I mean, now that I think about it, just all those times on the phone with, <laughs> with my grandmother trying to make her understand why I chose this particular excerpt to be so meaningful mm. to me. Um. It made me, really pay attention to the words that the author chose and why they were in that particular order and what emotion I wanted her to feel from my reading of them um so I can see all of that kind of conflating into this absolutely
0: yeah see that's that's so interesting because I know um a lot of writers often read out dialogue to see if the dialogue is kind of feeling natural um but do you I mean you said you you're when you were reading this out loud, is that something that you do throughout all of your writing process? You read the whole thing.
1: I do. I do. And I read it Great. to myself. I make recordings. I had a professor once who gave me the best advice, which was to do, <laughs> to basically record yourself reading it and then listen to yourself mm. in the car and to like listen awesome. to that recording as you're sort of driving and as you're thinking about something else to see what comes through and where, if your brain starts to veer off. Maybe you need to rework that section, or which is great, great advice. Um, yeah. Just in terms of keeping everything very fresh and keeping keep the pacing going. Um, mm. And it is interesting because I have a dear girlfriend who, when I first read um, this particular piece at a salon. She came up to me afterwards and said, Okay, wait, you have to have some sort of theater background. Like, (laughs) you went up there and it was as if you were, you know, performing a monologue. Um, And I, I mean, the last theater thing I had done at that point was I was in my freshman dorm musical. So that's a long time ago. (laughs) Um, But I do love, I do love that the performance part of it. I love sort of making the story present and alive in the moment Mm. um and you know (laughs) they they're listening and you have and because it is a short story because you do have just a finite amount of time you want them on the edge of their seats the whole time Mm -hmm. and you want them to have an understanding of that character so that they want what i want is for them to talk about vera in the car on the way home yeah (laughs) (laughs) so there is a performative aspect to it i i completely can see that
0: So, talk me through how you, um, how different it feels doing that live reading, and then the recording of it. How 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 did that differ, and how was the recording for you?
1: I think for me, the recording was felt so comfortable. I wasn't nervous at all, which is shocking because typically (laughs) I am very nervous about things like that. Um, It just felt like I was reading a story that feels so personal to me, um, mm. to a good friend who was was able to receive it with grace and with affection. I mean, I, I, I could feel that you had read it with the spirit that I want someone to read it with. Um, and so mm. it just felt this, like this lovely conversation about this woman who's been living in my head for a long time. So I really have to thank you for that because it just felt so comfortable and engaging and lovely.
0: Oh, I'm so glad. It's always nice when you can, you know, take something that actually is a little bit alien and a little bit uncomfortable, especially when you have that instant feedback of, wait, let's take that again. Let's go back let's try this um and so I'm glad it comes across with the spirit of oh let's try this like this way yes but yeah
1: (laughs) absolutely no I love I love that because I love I love knowing what what you picked up on and what you thought needed more emphasis um Mm. so that so that the the gist of it really came through
0: so one of the things that I find especially working with um author narrators who don't typically have a background in theatre, they don't, never ever wrote it for their voice or anything like that. One of the things I find um, is always the most challenging um, is, is voices, character voices. But we barely had to work on character voices. They seemed so natural to you. Had you been like giving them voices? Were you going around being Orville? I think so. I mean, I
1: think I needed, I wanted to get when I was writing it, I, I wanted to get Orville's voice right because yeah. um, he is so awful, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, but I don't necessarily think he all he started out that way. I think that this is someone who has evolved into what he is now. Mm-hmm. And I, I also wanted people to understand what she could have possibly seen in someone like this that he really did mark an escape for her yeah um that she felt seen for the first time she felt beautiful for the first time even though that um idea of her beauty really centered on one part of her body unfortunately Mm -hmm. um but it was important to me that he so yes i think you're right i think i I did practice his voice i (laughs) hope no one could hear me being orville because he's awful but It was important to me to get it right so that he wasn't just a monster on the page that felt flat, that Mm -hmm. hopefully there's something more to him. Um, I'm not making excuses for him at all, but that there is a certain charm to him. There is something that lured her in in the first place. And so, yeah, Yeah. I, I did. I did. I will admit secretly to walking around and. Trying on Orville's voice,
0: <laughs> channeling, <laughs> channeling, channeling my Orville. inner Orville. Gosh, I hope nobody channels no, that no. Inner Orville. Um, yeah, I mean, you could have gone a very different way with his character. You could have really made him a very obvious, invisible monster. Um, but I think what what there's so much grayscale to this story and there's so much grayscale to the relationships with the characters. Um because you're right, like you don't want people listening to it and or reading it and thinking, Well, you know, why did Vera do this? Because you created such in such a short amount of time, like this want this backstory for her where we really understood it. And he wasn't I mean, let's be clear, he there was this was a very clearly abusive relationship. Yes but he wasn't regularly violent it wasn't things that we recognize in abusive relationships yeah. um and and it really kind of created no doubt in the listener or reader's mind that this was abusive and you did that with such sensitivity and actually very little sort of obvious pen strokes you know um so that in itself is really really great and I think when you when you're reading or listening to abuse stories um it can be so hard yes and you somehow created a story where the reader and the listener you know feel safe and that was just incredibly well done. And I think your narration, very sensitive, um, really kind of gave that as well.
1: Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. I really am. Because I feel like, for me, the, one of the most upsetting scenes for me in, in the piece is when he tells her to smile for the neighbors. And she doesn't quite know when to yeah. stop. And then there's that terrible moment where he just laughs. At mm-hmm. her because she doesn't know when to stop, and I, yeah, there's nothing overtly monstrous mm-hmm. about that moment. Um, yeah, but it's so uncomfortable, and it and it and it does it does um sort of take one more veil off of just how destructive mm-hmm. their relationship is, absolutely, um, but it's not you know, someone driving by who sees a husband wanting to show her beautiful smile off to the neighbors wouldn't Mm -hmm. necessarily see it for what it is. Um, and so I'm glad I'm, I'm very, very glad that, that, that did come across as not, not necessarily an overt, um, an overt moment for them, but, but devastating nonetheless.
0: Yeah. And, and on the page in your ear, there is no doubt at all of what's happening and i think it really kind of dispels that um i mean she she doesn't she never asks for help she never and she shouldn't have to but then and it just creates that complex world doesn't it? it it really creates such understanding around vera herself but also the whole context of women not being believed. And yeah, I think your story really speaks to that in a a way that I'm not sure I've read before.
1: Oh, thank you. And I think that's what draws her to Rita, that who's just this loud, wonderful, you know, red wine in the refrigerator (laughs) person who is clearly not anything that Orville would ever want to be around because she epitomizes Mm -hmm. this strength and this kind of devil make care attitude of I don't need to please anyone um mm-hmm. so I just I wanted I want even though it doesn't last and even though you know Vera ultimately removes herself from that friendship I, it what it did feel good to give her a little bit of a moment of um yeah. what a woman can be and and the different shades of what a woman can do
0: and I think that, like that, I think that's one of my favorite moments of Vera realizing ways in which she can rebel in ways that keep her safe. Um, and uh, the way you <laughs> narrated Rita, I loved <laughs> when she came out like that. I was just like, oh my gosh! I just want to be friends with her. I know like, me she's too. <laughs> that, she's that big, brassy sort of huge character, larger than life. And, And the way you narrated her just oozed this warmth that, gosh, I I was, my heart like kind of ached for Vera because I was like, oh, she needs this so much.
1: She does. She does. And I like to think that that Rita was part of the process of of Vera taking back some of her authority Mm. and autonomy.
0: Yeah and I think the repetition of she could feel Rita's eyes on her. Yes. Um I I feel like I feel like throughout the, her whole life she probably feels I Rita's so. eyes on her. I think
1: so. I think so. And I think it it ends up being quite empowering for her at the end
0: yeah and uh I, I I loved that and I loved hearing your narration grow in strength and like kind of it went from this sort of empathy and sympathy to like this more steely more certain narration
1: I knew that that was happening but I do I again I have to credit you with with saying you know what now this is this is a turning point for her mm. so let's hear that in the narration yeah. and that was it was lovely to to feel like okay we can do this for her and with her
0: yeah I I think you're right Rita really just gave that strength and that and that moment at the end where you know Vera really has to tell the dentist no yes I'm I'm leaving it um I, I felt like Rita somewhere would be whooping and hollering and Rita she was toasting
1: so her with cold red wine from somewhere <laughs>
0: I mean, obviously I loved Rita. I think she's one of my favourite moments um, within the recording as well as sort of the written. Um, but I'm really interested um, sort of if there were any moments that you thought worked particularly well on audio. Um, and yeah, and any moments that kind of made you go, oh, I hadn't thought of it like that. That's new to me.
1: I think for me, honestly, I th- was thinking about this last night and for me it was the dentist office scene I found some things in there that I don't even know if I had seen before. And it was the process of hearing it, but then also knowing that she's going into that and having, and having sort of, I, this sounds odd, but like, I felt like you gave me permission for Vera to be stronger towards the end, just in Mm. my tone of voice, which I just think that that scene, she's, in charge, she's in charge mm. of her body for the first time. She's in charge of what happens to it. Um, she's there's almost a joy to her in that moment, which clearly is, is something I aspire to as I sit in the dentist chair, <laughs> as I'm you know <laughs> nervously really picking nice. at my fingernails. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I think like there's there's almost a jubilant undertone to her in that moment where. This is where she's, over the years, because that's the only thing that Orville really notices about her, and she was willing to contribute to that noticing. The dentist's office has been a place where she felt beautiful, historically. Mm -hmm. It's been a place where she's been complimented by the dentist for taking such good care of her teeth. It's almost like Mm -hmm. this one, one time where... She feels seen and heard and beautiful. And so what I wanted in that scene is for her to to really take charge of the relationship and not the dentist doesn't really have the power in that because she says, no, I don't. I need mm-hmm. you to take this out and I need you to leave me alone <laughs> now. Yeah. Um, and I just for me, the recording of that and trying to infuse the narration with that feeling of self-determination within Vera was really was quite remarkable on my end to to see that and hear that for the first time. I knew that that's what was happening on the page but mm-hmm. I think to really imagine her there and to imagine the little things that just delight her the tooth pin and you know the the mm-hmm. receptionist who rolls her Rs and it's there's a there's a very um there's almost a sensuality to it for her yeah. um, where she's rubbing her thighs and there's just she's sort of in her own body for the first time. And I really felt that in the recording.
0: I I was so fascinated by the dentist's character um, because I remember when I read it, um, I remembered really feeling um, that he was different to Orville he was he was kind when he complimented the teeth it wasn't possessive and I really really sort of loved that that she kind of enjoyed going there um but then there's that moment where you uh, wrote about that he was disappointed in her um and then he muttered women and I was just like oh she and then it made me go wait Let's reevaluate this. She still goes here wanting that um, validation because of her teeth. So she's actually just kind of sort of uh, displacing that desire for approval and that it was so well done. And I think the narration of him, sort of the first time we hear him to that line, it kind of descends into patronizing. And I just thought that that was, yeah, that was new to me when we sat down as yes. well, which I thought was just, it brought that extra bit of dynamic to it. Um, and even the the other people in, like, everyone was um, complicit somehow.
1: Yeah, because I feel like Helen, the dental assistant, is sort of complicit with him. Like, whatever Dr. Gimple would say, she would, you know, heartily yeah. agree. And I think somehow I wanted the receptionist to see or recognize something Mm. in Vera that she registered as being broken or harmed. Mm -hmm. Um, And that that's why I wanted that moment when she leaves, where there's kind of this moment of intimacy between these two women um, that serves as almost like a little moment of healing balm for Vera before she has to head back outside. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the, the women, the Dr. Gimple women, because that's gone mm. in and out and in and out over the years. Really? Because I've never, I wasn't, for a long time I couldn't settle on whether I just wanted him to be this sort of kind, affable, fairly innocuous man in her life but i didn't i don't i i'm i'm now at peace with having him not be that <laughs> because i do think that he all along was a man in a position of power mm. and yeah we can't forget that um and that part of the complimenting is really part of his profession um mm-hmm. and so i i did want to allow him to be flawed in that way as well for just one more example um, that feeds into Vera's desire for things to be different, even if it's just on the inside.
0: Yeah. And and I think the fact that the first time we see her sort of take a stand and have strength is against someone who, I mean, although she has sought approval from, um, he, he is actually quite inconsequential in her life. So it feels like you're kind of seeing her test test out this new power new sense of strength um and then that moment where she goes home and you're preparing yourself for it right as a listener as a reader talk me through that that last line did you always know it was going to end like that
1: i didn't i've there were a couple iterations where the dentist refuses to fix the tooth Oh, really? Um And she has to go home rather defeated. And that was an original version for a long time. And it never sat well with me, but I wasn't quite sure how to give her a moment of triumph that wasn't a little too contrived or a little mm-hmm. too much. Um, and so when I thought about the fact that she's been told to smile her whole life, um, mm-hmm. I, I sort of implied there was... Implied a bit of that from her mother of like, you know, what, what, how you're supposed to behave and the way yeah. that a woman is supposed to be in the world. Um, and then she marries a man who doesn't care whether she wants to smile or not. It's just the physical act of stretching, you know, her mouth open for somebody else. And I wanted her to be able to take that back, that her, it's it's hers and she can dole it out when she wants to and when it's deserved Um, And so that just that moment at the end when he really, you know, kind of comes at her in a negative way. And I hope that, you know, things aren't going to be entirely smooth for her, certainly, but she's found some agency. She's found um, some ownership over her own body and her own power, I think.
0: Yeah, I think um, I'm really interested to know because you talked about how it's you, your short story is like to focus on these sort of shifting moments, um, emotional shifts, um, sort of decision points. Um, and you really get that with this one. Um, I'm really interested to know sort of what you think happens to Vera after this. Do you, do you think about that?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, I what I tend to do a lot of the time is I write past I write towards what I think an ending should be. And then in the editing process, I realize that the ending was long before what I thought mm. the ending was. Because I Very love that moment of where you have that kind of small intake of breath at the end of something. And it could go on a bit longer, but then you would miss out on that yummy wondering part mm. of, that I think is so lovely in short stories. Yeah. Um, I do think about Vera a lot. I mean, I think I... I I don't know if I have a firm grasp of what, you know, it looks like for her five years down the road, ten years down the road. But I have spent a lot of time thinking about what that day looks like and what the following day looks like. And Mm -hmm. what I kind of wanted to keep a bit unknown is whether or not he will ever notice that there is this tooth missing in the back of her mouth. Oh, or if it's just something that she knows. Because there's that moment where she refers to, like, it's a pocket. She loves that idea that she could put anything in there. And then mm. there's the moment where she, it's like a secret or like a lover. And I think, I wonder sometimes if what she needed was to have a secret that she owns. And something that mm. she can touch. Something that's her. Something that she made. um, That almost serves as... A coat of armor against whatever Orville can say.
0: Oh, I, I mean I love this story. I think oh. it is it was such a nice read. I mean, nice is, no, maybe I know, it is, it is. the right word. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, I know. But like, it's so full of tension, it's so full of wanting. Wanting from Vera, wanting from you know, the listener, the reader. Um and so I'm just I'm so pleased that you were able oh. to be part of this show. Oh,
1: thank you so much. This has just been a delight from start to finish. I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed it.
0: Great. Well, we I, I'll welcome any other short stories on in, in future seasons definitely. Um and so, tell us where uh, where can listeners find you if they want more?
1: So I do have a website, um, which has a sol- just selected writings and some other things on there. So if you go to Katie M as in Mary Ziegler, Z E I G L E R dot com, you will find me and s- and some selected writings of mine.
0: Great! Thank you so much. Um, oh, thank you your so much, Alicia. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Katie for sharing her story and process with us this week, and thank you to Teddy Merricks, my one-man production team for the music and logos. And thanks, of course, to you for listening. If you could take a second to rate and review the podcast and share it on social media, it would honestly help so much. It helps for discoverability and making sure that we don't get lost right at the bottom of the pile. If you're interested in getting involved, either by submitting your short story or having a chat with me about audiobooks, you can find more info and contact details on my website at englishgirlinnewyork.org. I also hang around on Instagram under at alicia'sbooks.n.bobs, as in books and bobs. This was In Short, the podcast from Blanket Fort Productions. See you all next time.